Imagine a world where innovation knows no bounds. At BAE Systems Fast Labs, we're pioneering advanced technology and defense research, shaping the future of safety and security. Explore our website to uncover a realm of cutting-edge projects, collaborations, and visionary thinkers. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, a defender of freedom, or just curious, Fast Labs is where groundbreaking solutions are born. Join us and be part of the future today. Visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. Thanks for listening. On today's episode, I welcome Brigadier General Rob Parker. He is Deputy Director J6 on the Joint Staff. We sit down to continue our series on Joint All-Domain Command and Control, or JADC2. Before we begin, I want to thank our episode sponsor, Northrop Grumman Corporation. Northrop Grumman provides full-spectrum superiority. Their innovative, multifunction, interoperable solutions ensure warfighters have full-spectrum dominance to make real-time decisions, no matter the environment or domain. Learn more at ngc.com slash EW. All right, I'm pleased to be here with Brigadier General Rob Parker, Deputy Director J6. He began his assignment this past January 2021. In his role, he serves as the chair of the JADC2 cross-functional team, and separately as the chair of the C4 Cyber Functional Capabilities Board. General Parker, thank you for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. Hey, Ken, really glad to be here. Very unique opportunity for me. I appreciate the opportunity and really look forward to today's dialogue. Great. Well, just to uh, dive right in, so we've been talking on this podcast over the course of several episodes, taking a look at industry perspectives and military perspectives and so forth. And, you know, we talk about JATSE2 is basically a concept of connecting sensors from all the military services into a single network. Uh, of course, it's a lot more complicated than that when you get into it. But generally speaking, you as the chair of the JATSE2 cross-functional team, uh, I know that you just released a new strategy. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the cross-functional team and, and how you're approaching this challenge of establishing JATSE2. And then we can talk a little bit about the strategy coming up. Yeah, sure, Ken. I'd, I'd be glad to. I think that's a great lead-in question. It, it gives me the opportunity uh, to really help part of what's a continual education process for us. Certainly, as a department over the past year, what's referred to as JADC2 has been interpreted many different ways, particularly prior to us actually getting a strategy published. And so sometimes there's some confusion out there amongst various stakeholders within the joint force and also outside of that. And so when I hear it referred to as a single network, that, that's usually one of the first areas that I really go back to try to help others understand that this is really not about a, a single network, a single material or non-material solution. It's really about establishing a framework of federated networks that we're bringing together at multiple classification levels to really focus and enable on moving the department from what has traditionally been a very network-centric environment to really a data-centric environment. And to do that, we have a series of efforts underway. The establishment of the cross-functional team, and really more recently, here in February of this year, with the Deputy Secretary of Defense revalidating our charter and really expanding some of our roles and responsibilities has underscored just how important this effort is to really guide the department under some new and refined governance 
and also provide a vision for the way ahead. So the, the CFT, not unlike other cross-functional teams, as I alluded to, has a charter. But what's really unique about this, this is probably one of the only places in the department where you will find representatives from almost every single DOD component in terms of our OSD staff representation, our combatant commands, our services, including our 5i partners as well, and then other government organizations all coming together, not only on a regular basis just for a, a, a monthly meeting, but we have five very important working groups and OPTs aligned under this structure that's really built out amongst all our stakeholders. So when a product is developed, or guidance comes out of the CFT with recommendations to either the, the JROC, as you already alluded to, who we report to and really execute day-to-day -day operations as related to JADC2 on behalf of the JROC, or we report to the Deputy Secretary of Defense, who we, we're also tasked with answering to. Either one of those, those solutions or recommendations all come about from a combination of subject matter experts representing a, a very wide variety of stakeholders there. And so more often than not, it's something that everybody feels like they have buy-in and can come into that process, be heard, and have you know their concerns addressed up front. And I, I'd be amiss if I, I didn't mention really the, the MSO CFTs at the table with me as well. Dennis Lulu. Uh, who leads that CFT is usually just sitting right off to my right, and they're an integral partner in helping make sure that when we think about all domain operations right now, I mean, clearly the five primary domains, but everything we discuss has the electromagnetic spectrum is really that backbone thread through those domains that we have to acknowledge. That's an essential aspect of our ability to move from this network-centric to a data-centric environment that's ultimately going to rely on AI and machine learning there to generate not only information advantage, but decision advantage, and then ultimately operational advantage for the force. Right. I'm glad you mentioned EMSO. We'll get to that in a little bit because I did want to talk to you about your coordinating efforts with the EMSO CFT. But, you know, it really, when you look at what JADC2 is, is trying to accomplish, you know, you're really basically changing the way that we need to fight across DOD and across the services. It's really kind of gets to the heart of how we have to fight in order to win in any combat here in the future. Back in early June, you just had a, a new strategy that was released. And the strategy as I understand it, has about five key lines of effort, data, human enterprise, technology, nuclear command and control, and mission partner environment. Can you tell us a little bit about these five lines of effort of the strategy? Where is that now? I, you know, it's, it's basically implementation time now for the strategy once that's released. What does that mean for the CFT moving forward? Yeah, so Ken, you're absolutely right. Our strategy was officially signed by the SecDef in May, really started going public with our announcement here in early June with that. And as we look, it, that strategy lays out our strategic goals. And when you mentioned the, the lines of efforts, that, that's really where we see the identification of our cardinal heading to really guide a coherent, orchestrated department-level actions really to deliver what I alluded to earlier, these material, non-material solutions revised policy, doctrine is necessary. So it's, again, much more than, than just a network. When we look at our, our data line of effort, 
worked very closely with the DOD chief data officer and many teaming efforts on that. We've run a series of data events and data summits that involve our chief data officers from really across the force, including all the combatant commands and services. And we run through that every 30 to 60 days. We just recently finished up a a very good summit out at STRATCOM. Our next one will be down at US SOCOM later this month. But through that process, it helped to formulate the methodology that we're going to apply as we build out our data fabric and really how we manage our data in terms of, you know, specifically thinking through things like what we refer to as vaultus, this idea of having visible, accessible, understandable, linked, trusted, interoperable, and secure data. You'll find that reflected in the DepSecDefs data strategy that came out late in the fall of last year. But that kind of methodology as it's pulled in, helps to inform us as we think through things like adaptive governance, where this data is going to have to be managed and accessible, not just at an enterprise level, but all the way out to the tactical edge. And so I think as you look through the rest of our lines of effort, particularly the human enterprise that's inclusive of those things like the policy changes that are necessary to make this possible. We know today that we have outdated policy that's preventing us from sharing and moving data or assembling it and aggregating it in the ways necessary to really take full advantage and be able to layer that machine learning, artificial intelligence, predictive analysis that we need in so many areas. We have to revise our doctrine, our training, And so as we think about those things, there's critical linkage to the technology. Part of that's uh, the traditional hardware that we think through. A lot of it's software and non-material solutions as well. And how do those all come together? I'm not going to speak to the the nuclear piece, but I will go to, to LOE5, which is really a foundational element that makes JADC2 different from some of our previous efforts as a department. And that's the mission partner environment where we recognize that there is a critical requirement for us to integrate and leverage our mission partner capabilities, really to improve not only the Joint Force's ability to plan, but also to execute these operations. And so what the community will see from the start, and it is already started, it's not like something we're doing in the future. I mentioned at the CFT, we already have our 5i partners sitting at the table. We have strong partnerships in place through a variety of forums where we're building out this idea of releasable network connectivity from the get-go. That gives us some unique opportunities to make sure that interoperability and integration is not an afterthought once we've moved out on this. But I would like to to be clear and make sure that the audience understands we're not just talking about traditional maybe NATO partners or other international military partners. When we speak to the mission partner environment, we're looking at federal, state, local, tribal, non-government organizations, other government organizations. So really, it's a very wide swath of stakeholders that we've got to work to get pulled into this. And that's Certainly not easy. We know it's going to be hard, but we think we're off to a pretty good start right now. 
Hello, everyone. I want to take a short break to thank BAE Systems Fast Labs for their continued support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. I am pleased to be here today with Bill Watson, Chief Scientist at BAE Systems Fast Labs. Bill, it's great to be here with you. Now, BAE Systems Fast Labs is BAE Systems Research and Development and Production Organization. Can you tell us a little bit about Fast Labs as well as your background? Yes, and thank you for having me. A BA Systems Fast Labs is dedicated to innovating, disruptive next generation solutions for the critical defense and intelligence challenges. Of course, electronic warfare is one of our key focus areas, but in addition to that, we also do research in autonomy and AI, sensing and response, advanced microelectronics, communications, and navigation. I've been working in the RF, that is radio frequency research community for over 20 years, a short time in the United States Air Force, followed by specific research and development. My work in the last 20 years has been singularly focused on DARPA research and within the last 10 years at BAE Systems Fast Labs specifically. Technology we work on spans sensor processing through high-level sense making up to tactical and operational level autonomy and decision-making support. And one of the key differentiators about BAE Fast Labs is the research that we do uh, is intended to find its way to benefit the warfighter. This has been an important topic through many of our recent episodes here on From the Crow's Nest. Can you talk a little bit more about that technology? And for our audience, how does it change or affect our EW capabilities that we're trying to field? In our work with leading uh, DoD customers like DARPA or AFRL, we focus on developing technologies that will uh, advance future solutions from overcoming today's challenges to developing technologies never before thought to be possible. We then transition our technology to feelable products to benefit our warfighters through partnership with BA Systems Electronic Systems product lines. As a specific example, I thought I'd use a movie you may or may not be familiar with. It was called Battle Los Angeles. It was from 2011. And in that movie, aliens it had invaded. And what the characters in the movie found is that whenever they keyed their microphones on their radios, they could be easily geolocated and targeted. What the movie presented as science fiction for us is, in fact, science fact. This is the type of technology that we work on and exist today where the physics meets the real world. This sounds like absolutely fascinating work. What is the next area that you see for research and development? And if anyone is interested in learning more, how can they reach out to you? Well, we can't say too much because of the sensitivity of our work and classification levels. But in Fast Labs, we are always working on the future state. No matter what the future threats are, we will continue to focus on solving the hardest problems to benefit the warfighter. If you're interested in more information about Fast Labs, you can connect with us on our website at basystems.com slash fastlabs. Well, thank you, Bill, for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. And now it's time to get back to our show. You mentioned earlier, you talked a little bit about data, and I want to go back to some of the challenges you are facing in pursuing JADC2. And, and I would kind of, and I would classify, I see basically four primary challenges. And and I'd like to get your opinion on this. Like the first one, as you mentioned, was data. There's such increasingly large quantities of data out there that you have to collect and sift through. And then you have the issue of automation, the speed to which you analyze, use artificial intelligence. And then you have to visualize that data when you send it out to the force. And then, of course, organizationally, as you mentioned, as, as we mentioned earlier, you know, there's organizational aspects that you have to tackle. So, with some of these challenges, what are the early steps that you need to take to address some of these challenges? 
And how do these challenges, to the extent that you're in alignment with that, like how do these challenges kind of shape what your final measure of success is going to be with with the strategy? Yeah, so I, I'll try to answer that a few different ways. I think what I heard you describe is probably what we think of as some of the various data pipelines. There really is, we think through in terms of discovery, ingestion, preparation, storage, processing, and exposure. That sort of gives us a construct for how we approach the, the problem set. And specifically in terms of really getting out there and understanding not only where our data is, but getting access to it. You know, part of that's culture, which is getting the data owners to understand that they have a requirement to share and expose that data with our other joint partners and stakeholders out there. I'm confident that through some of the the guidance that's coming out of the JROC, that increasingly the customer base out there and those data owners will understand that. The policy piece that I spoke to is going to be really critical because in many cases, we're talking about gaining accessibility to data at multiple classification levels. In order to do so, it's incredibly important for us to know who is on our network, who is requesting access to that data, and do they have the right authorities and security clearances, those types of things, to have access to it. So identity credentialing and access management is really a critical piece as we build out the JADC2 ecosystem. As we have that, the ability to work and expose this data and really manage it in smart ways, we don't have the talent necessary to do that in many of our organizations. And I think if you speak to some senior leaders and commercial industry, and other areas outside the DOD, they would tell you, you know, you're not going to be able to afford to bring the people on and keep them on a a government payroll that have the right skill set to get after the problems you're trying to solve. And I'm glad that our senior military leadership in the department recognize that. You may have heard or the audience may have recently seen Dr. Hicks Deputy Secretary, put out within the past week or two what she's referring to as her artificial intelligence and data acceleration initiative, and that's really aided, and that's bringing together both the power of the chief data officer in the DOD, along with the joint artificial intelligence center, nested with the JADC2 CFT, and importantly, getting resources put behind that from the department so that they can go out and send teams out to the combatant commands. Some will be permanent, some will come and go. They'll bring new capabilities out to assist in solving problems today. They'll also assist in developing artificial intelligence programs to solve some of the combatant command unique problems and those that can be shared across the department. We also have several other initiatives that are ongoing out there through the Jake and others that allow us to reach into corporate industry to really bring in, like I said, some very high level subject matter expertise or a, a specific period of time to get after some of those problem sets that maybe we don't have the skill set to solve. At this time, let's take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor. 
Providing full-spectrum superiority across all domains. That's defining possible. Giving warfighters the freedom to act across the spectrum, especially in highly contested battle spaces, can seem impossible. At Northrop Grumman, we've pushed the boundaries of possible across the spectrum for decades. Today, our cutting-edge, interoperable, multifunction technologies are a revolutionary leap in spectrum dominance. How revolutionary? Imagine detecting the precise location of an adversary long before they ever detect you. Or better yet, denying or degrading an adversary system without them being able to do a thing about it. Your freedom to shape the spectrum is an overwhelming advantage in every domain. An advantage made possible by Northrop Grumman's unique, software-defined, open, safe, secure architecture solutions. It's all part of our commitment to ensure our warfighters have full-spectrum dominance to make real-time decisions, no matter the environment. That's defining possible. Learn more at ngc.com EW. Earlier, you mentioned electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO, and uh, as you know, the Association of Old Crows, that's what we do. That's what we uh, focus on. That's our mission. And I was glad to hear that you, you said that EMSO is really kind of the backbone of JADC2, you know, and that, that's our view here is because to when you're starting to talk about data, signals, networks, if you don't have EMS superiority, you're not going to be able to accomplish those outcomes. And so I wanted to go talk, get your thoughts a little bit more on the role that EMSO has to play. And you mentioned your cooperative uh, working relationship with the EMSO CFT. And I was wondering if you could build upon that a little bit. Yeah, so I'll probably clarify a little better. I think and see EMSO is really a critical thread in the background, backbone of JADC2, but, but not the backbone in JADC2. And I, I would also clarify a little bit that the, the idea of EMS superiority, from my view, is a prerequisite for JADC2 and EMSO. I think that's more of an aspirational goal. Again, speaking as uh, the CFT chair, my opinion would be that JADC2 as a framework and a construct for the joint force is by nature designed to operate in a denied, degraded, intermittent, and limited environment really by by definition. And so that requires us to, as we've talked about earlier, have multiple networks. We also have to have multiple paths for transport and ways that we replicate and access our data globally from a, a variety of locations. When I think about the EMBM, the electromagnetic, electromagnetic battle management tool set, I, I think that is a perfect fit within JADC2. It relies on many of the, the things and builds on what we've, we've talked about already today in terms of reaching out and pulling in data in near real time from a variety of sources across a disparate network, building using predictive analytics, machine learning, AI. I think that's critical, but I see it as just one of many systems that's out there in the JADC2 ecosystem. When we look at building out our data fabric, and I want to be clear, there isn't just one JADC2 data fabric. It's a federation of fabrics across the services and multiple organizations. That's where we see these application processing interfaces, this idea of APIs out there. And that, that's really sort of how I view EMBM is critically important. It's got to be accessible, but it's one of several critical tool sets that not only enable specific subject matter expertise for those who are working electromagnetic support, protect, attack, 
but it's also helping to build that critical data advantage for our joint force commanders who are the ones who ultimately have to be able to understand, decide, and act in time-sensitive manners in ways that just, you know, in recent years, I don't think we could fully appreciate. The acceleration of technology, the acceleration of how fast our peer adversaries are gaining access to that technology and the understanding of how we fight really puts our reliance on this time-sensitive information just incredibly important. It makes it incredibly important. So I absolutely think EMS is critical to JADC2. JADC2 cannot exist without it. So I don't want to take away from that. I just maybe look at it through a little bit of a different lens. So there, there are several exercises and demonstrations across DOD and the military services uh, over the next year. Old Quest, Project Convergence, uh, there's Project Overmatch. All of them are advancing either service or DOD roles uh, in, JAS, in the JASI-2 mission. Uh, I was wondering if you could discuss any of these exercises and what is the, the JASI-2 CFT looking, want to see from that, these exercises and how are they going to further your mission? Yeah, I, I appreciate that question. I, I think all of all along, and those who've heard my boss, Lieutenant General Crowell, speak, uh, and others, even the the vice chairman, I think the the common reference is always we understand we've got to meet services and our combatant commands where they are today. Meaning, there, there's equipment systems that are fielded. They've got a certain level of capability. JADC two can't be something that we bring about in ten years, fifteen, or twenty years. It's about delivering now. There's a lot of discovery learning going on right now, and we view that as healthy. You, you've mentioned several of the service contributing efforts to JADC2, Overmatch, Convergence, ABMS. Each one is, fo- is focused both on solving some service unique problems, which we appreciate and understand they got to get after whether there's JADC2 out there or not. They, they've got to get after that. But there are also some joint problem sets that need to be solved. And so we're watching very closely and involved with each of those efforts. What is the CFT looking for? Just like I think we saw an article from the DepSecDef within the past week or so, we're looking for those things that have joint commonality that show promise for helping to move and accelerate our efforts to really meet the JADC2 vision and framework that's been described today. And so we are actively out there looking for really what some would describe as those fires that are burning brightest to see if we can get behind them. There's certainly some efforts ongoing in terms of identifying potential resourcing where the services may have put in some initial resources to get it started, but simply don't have enough to bring a certain capability to to fruition, either at scale for that service or really more importantly, across the, the joint force. Similarly, but separately, we're also looking for duplicity. And you don't have to look far to find organizations, whether it's services, combatant commands, or others, all doing some very similar things, trying to solve very similar problems. And so in those efforts, we're trying to really identify the best of, bring that together, while things like software sharing, reusable software, we've got some really smart teams out there in some of these service software factories, as they've been described, developing. But if it's not easily shared uh, across the network, or excuse me, across the the environment, 
we're really spending our money multiple times to solve the same problem. So I think we want to be smart about the areas we can be smart about, not restrict innovation or initiatives that the, the services are showing. But it's not all about what the services are doing. Combatant commands have several good efforts that are out there right now. We look at NORTHCOM for their guide effort. The experiments are going on there. It's multiple series uh, of exercises there. That's a globally integrated information dominance experiment. It's getting a lot of visibility. It's also the STRATCOM Global Data Integration, GDI, Guide and GDI have combined here recently, and I think we'll, we'll see some pretty exciting outcomes in Guide 3 as it evolves this summer. We also have other initiatives and efforts that are out there. You mentioned BoldQuest, and, and we're really trying to shape BoldQuest as something of our, our JADC2 focal point each year. We have great participation, maybe 20-plus international partners in that environment. As we look at what we're doing this summer, really critical to working our efforts to extend out to the tactical edge. So specifically, we're trying to bring in our secret and below releasable environment, Sabre environment as part of our, our mission partner environment there, and look at new and different ways of distributing that that would be effective in the kind of CHAD-C2 environments we envision in the future. So we're bringing in some tactical elements. We're going to use some different means of transport to really push that out and really work through that demonstration to see what we can learn and how we might be able to accelerate that portion of JADC2. Great. Um, so, so one more question. The FY 2022 budget was just uh, released uh, several weeks ago. There's no fight up to it. That'll come out next year. I was wondering if you could talk about some of the initiatives that are funded in this year's, in the FY 2022 budget that you're keeping an eye on, and what are some of the long-term initiatives that you expect will be addressed in the fight up uh, over the next five years? That's a good question, a fair question. I probably won't be able to to answer it in the the detail you or or some in the audience might want. I would say that there's some pretty obvious areas that we'll be looking at, much the same as anyone else. When we think of some of the, the main service initiatives that are associated with JADC2 that have been out there in the public forum, things like ABMS, Army Modernization, Priority Programs, specifically, but not limited to those aligned under the network CFT. Other service component efforts that are out there in the public domain, those are all of interest to us. But I think what's really important and has our our focus more so than anything is a, a changing resource environment in terms of thought and methodology from really the, the highest levels in our department that are gaining increasingly increasing support from our elected officials on the Hill. And that's the idea is we think of things like colorless money, we think of other transaction authorities, which Congress has granted us, but how we're moving ahead to utilize those in new and different ways. And again, doc, Dr. Hicks has, has done a great job setting the conditions for this, you and others may be familiar, just released this latest effort, the Rapid Defense Experimentation Reserve, commonly referred to as RADAR. And this is really about developing a, a unified innovation ecosystem that's going to start right away. And it's about getting it institutionalized and getting after truly strategic efforts. So, you know, your, your previous question when we were talking about experiments and demonstrations, this is exactly 
where this is focused, you know, rapid prototyping, experimentation, other similar efforts, whereas previously it may be communities of interest, combatant command services trying to scrape together some money and get after something, but not really be able to put the right levels of resources behind it, the right level of departmental support. What we'll see through this Raider Reserve Fund is the ability for services, combatant commands to come up and present these ideas in a competitive selection environment where they will get looked at seriously, pulled up and elevated and have the opportunity to receive some pretty significant dedicated funding resources to help build out these types of capabilities that we need to support the joint force collectively. So if I was looking and listening anywhere, that I think is going to be a very interesting area to watch, see how that evolves. I'm confident it's going to be extremely impactful and probably exactly what we need uh, as a force to, to help accelerate modernization and get us where we need to be to win the next fight. Thank you, General Parker, for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. Uh, it was great insight on where the Pentagon is going on JADC2, and I appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to join me today. Hey, Ken, again, I really appreciate the invite, and uh, equally important, I appreciate the members of the, the Association Old Crows that are, you know, many are, are former military and are remain committed to keeping after, informing, helping, assisting, and really shaping uh, our force and the vision for the future. So thank you again. You're welcome, and I look forward to working with you and hopefully interviewing you again with an update on how everything's going here in the next few months. I appreciate your time. Sounds great. Thank you. All right. Take care. That will conclude this episode of From the Crow's Nest. I want to thank my guest, Brigadier General Rob Parker, for joining me. I also want to thank our episode sponsor, Northrop Grumman Corporation. Northrop Grumman's multifunction interoperable solutions create full-spectrum superiority for our warfighters across all domains. Learn more at ngc.com EW. And finally, please check out our new sister podcast, The History of Crows. You can learn more at crows.org slash podcast. Thanks for listening. Fast Labs, powered by BAE Systems, is at the forefront of advanced technology and defense research, development, and production. They're pushing boundaries, breaking barriers, and innovating for a safer world. Check them out at www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs.